Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here with me. Very much appreciate you hanging in the Freedom Hut. We've got uh, lots of stuff to talk about today, which will be fun. If you want to add in your voice to the show, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, that's the number to call. Uh, we're gonna, some of today is going to be a little bit of uh, follow-up because there's new, new bits to add in, new uh, data points to mix into our conversation from stories yesterday. Right now, the big thing that's got all of D.C. in a uh, in a tizzy, got them all spun up. I don't, do people say that outside? That's what we used to say in D.C. when somebody was you know, in, in government circles. Oh, man, that got them spun up. I don't know if I hear that. Is that something people say or is that a th- No, you no, not really. OK, no, not really. Then again, I do use words like nincompoop and nincompoopery on this show, which I'm not even sure the second's a word, but I just made one. It's a uh, what is it? In neologism. So, working at all kinds of words at the start of the show. Uh, but the shutdown talk, that's what's got them all. Woo! The final shutdown. Remember that? That was, that was a pretty, thank you. They're saying it is close enough. You guys knew what I'm talking about there. 1987, good year. It was a good year. I think a big stock market crash in that year, but a good year nonetheless. So, they're... Uh, they're freaked out about the government shutdown, and I'm starting to get I'm starting to get a feeling that this is one of those things that everyone's happy to talk about because it allows them to have a debate, but it's gonna very quickly be the two guys. Pardon me for I know I'm I'm grabbing I'm gendering people here. Two guys at a bar who are like, hold me back, hold me back, but they both know they're not actually gonna fight. But they get to say all that stuff like, oh, like if you came near me, there'd be two sounds. You taking a swing and you hitting the floor, you know, stuff like that. That's that's what I think. Or to me hitting you and you hitting the floor, whatever that old tough guy, however that old tough guy thing is supposed to go. Because you got Republicans and Democrats who are both able to make their cases on this issue of DACA and immigration. But there's actually nothing about the budget Sealing the, the the possible shutdown that is time sensitive. Uh, you know, I see this news, and this is the perfect example of what I was talking about yesterday. Here's NBC News: Nervous Republicans fear they will pay if there is a government shutdown. They're they're already going into this with a loser mentality, and the media is trying to amplify that. You know, they're trying to uh, they're they're trying to make it seem like it's Already been decided. It is a fait, fait accompli, monsieur. It is a thing already done. That if the shutdown happens, Republicans will be blamed. Doesn't matter what the deal is on immigration. 
doesn't matter what the public is told about and and also that the Republicans have the uh, House and the Senate and the White House. And yet Democrats think that they're supposed to be the ones dictating, dictating the agenda. I wonder how this could play out in any way that does not turn into, you know what? We're just not going to we're just not going to do this right now, guys. We're just not going to have this shutdown fight. Uh, and this is what our, our political parties, unfortunately, have degenerated into, I think, in large part, which is that they, they both like to talk. They'd like to talk very tough on major policy issues as long as they don't have to take a tough vote and make a decision on it and, and be on the record with it. They'd rather not have to handle the issue of immigration. They use this to make it seem like, you know, they, they give some speeches and they go on cable news. And I wonder sometimes some of these elected officials. Are they TV commentators or are they legislators? Because some of them spend a lot of time trying to get their faces on TV. And all they have to do is get on there and say, oh, yeah, you know, I, you know, re- repealing a place Obamacare. A lot of them lied about that. And now with immigration, it's, oh, no, there's, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a wall we're going to vote for. Sure, sure, sure. I doubt it. Or at least I have my doubts. I have my doubts uh, with this because the Democrat position now on DACA and what could be done in in response for or in exchange for a DACA deal. Is a joke. Right. To say that they're going to just. Give Border Border Patrol more money. Well, Democrats love that. There is not a federal agency of the government, m- with the exception of the military. Isn't that interesting? The, the, the single most important thing the federal government does is the one place where Democrats want to cut. But there's not a single bureaucracy in the federal executive branch that or, or under the aegis of the executive branch that does not uh, cannot count on the Democrat Party to give it more money. They're always down to give it more money. That doesn't mean anything. You you could give Border Patrol, and this is not a knock on Border Patrol, by the way, at all, or Border Patrol agents, but you could give Border Patrol a a 5x increase in their current budget, but if they are not, if they are constrained by certain rules of engagement, if they are not allowed to enforce the laws as written, if they're not allowed to do their jobs, it doesn't matter. And in fact, I think then you'll see a surge in people wanting to go work for an agency like Customs and uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement or Border Patrol who just know that it's kind of a cushy bureaucratic post that you don't have to do all that much. You know, if, you, if you just throw a lot of money at them but don't actually allow them to do the mission, you're not going to see hard-charging folks that want to sign up for that in the future if that becomes what Border Patrol is. But so Democrats just saying they're going to give more money, that's not enough. That doesn't get it done. There has to be... There has to be more. Uh, And that's where you have this breakdown. That's where you have this inability to get some kind of a deal. But Democrats seem to be in a game of chicken with the Republicans, and they look like right now they expect to win. You got uh, my favorite from yesterday, Senator Leahy, with the following today. There's only one person who has called for a shutdown of the government, and that's Donald Trump. He's done it twice. Uh, 
I would hope that his fellow Republicans won't follow his demand for a shutdown. It would humiliate our country. It would humiliate the president. Uh, and it would cost us billions and billions of dollars. Uh, they've had months to put together uh, a deal. Uh, Democrats have been willing to work on every step. This deal they're talking about in the House now is a big leap at best. Uh, uh, okay, all right. Enough, enough lay here. No, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> it's a punishment. I can't take it. Uh, Look, Democrats are making a demand, and they are in the minority. They shouldn't be making demands, and yet they think they're in a position to. And the only reason, the only way they could think that is if they believe that Republicans don't have the courage of their convictions on this to stand up and go into a shutdown scenario. I've given them the bumper sticker. I've given them the, yes, I will say it, propaganda point, because I don't believe that all propaganda is bad. In fact, one day, if you want, I could talk to you about the history of propaganda and how initially it was set up to be the propagation of the faith. That's where the word comes from. It was an, it was an office from within the Vatican, specifically sent out, created so that when they sent out uh, priests around the world, they would know doctrine and not get caught up in any heresies or falsehoods of doctrine. So yeah, I think it was called uh, Propagatio, Propagatio de Fide, the propagation of the faith. And then propaganda became a bad term in the First World War with the advent of mass media and radio. But conversation we can have another time. I've already given. I've already. Oh, and, and uh, Bernays is the one who wrote the book on this, literally wrote the book on propaganda. So you can check that out if you like. Not like the sauce, Bernays. It's B-E-R-N-A-Y-S. I've told Republicans what they have to say. Democrats are willing to shut, they're willing to shut down the government for non-citizens. Full stop. There you go. Democrats are willing to bring the federal government to a stop because they want something for people who are non-citizens in violation of U.S. law. They will not win if Republicans make that case. But here's the problem. I think there are a lot of Republicans who are unwilling to make that case. You know why? They think... Even the ones who don't necessarily believe that DACA is good for the country or is, is going to be a limited amnesty. I told you yesterday it's not going to be a limited amnesty. That, that's fantasy land stuff. The moment you create any amnesty, other categories of illegal will use that as the doorway for just coming into the country and staying or staying in the country and uh, flooding the courts and they'll just be here. And the political pressure to legalize only becomes stronger once you've done one legalization. Other groups say, well, hold on a second. Look at that. But even for Republicans that recognize all that, and I don't know, there's plenty of dumb members of Congress, as we all know. There's smart ones, too. But there's some dumb ones. We're going to talk about Jeff Flake later. That's going to be fun. Uh, they are worried that they'll be on the wrong side of this issue. Meaning, and this was a favorite narrative uh, talking point of the Obama administration, Republicans are on the wrong side of history, right? Which is a only people that don't know history use that term or use that term as frequently as the Obama administration folks did because a lot changes. In fact, a lot of history is cyclical. A lot comes and goes. Uh, but the notion that Republicans are all unified with the Trump 
with the Trump voice on this, with the Trump agenda on this, is, I think, a mistaken one. They're worried that there will be a DACA, and if they were standing up against DACA with a vote, that could come back to haunt them in the future. And think of uh, any purple or purplish state, any state that has a substantial uh, Hispanic population that could be, you know, an issue if mobilized against them in the next midterm or the next time they're the next time they're up for re-election. So that's why I see this as a lot of jockeying for position on TV and not a lot of action. I could be wrong, and I hope I am. I am hoping that by Friday I'm going to say, all right, you know, they they hammered out a deal that I think is a good deal that just extends DACA as a temporary protection while they actually get concrete. Now, this would be a great deal, but I don't think they should take less than a great deal. Extend DACA temporary protection and get a wall. Now, some of you are like, Buck, don't extend DACA. No, no, no. I didn't say permanent. I said a temporary extension. Get a wall. Get what you can. And then go back into a negotiation about what will happen with DACA going forward. Look, there's an expectation right now that there could be some major, uh, some major, I guess you call them raids, I don't know, sweeps, roundups by the administration of illegals in the weeks ahead by the federal government. That will also change the narrative, I think, quite a bit. That will also change the storyline here. Because if we let if we let the media create their own version of events, which is what they're doing, it's that Trump wants to take the best, smartest, most wonderful Americans, even though they're not technically Americans, and send them all out of the country. The doc the dreamers. The dreamers among us are going to be sent away. And no other issue comes into this discussion. I have other thoughts on this, but I, I realize I have to run to a break here. We're going to run long. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCKS. Stay, uh, stay with me, team. Light up those lines, and we'll be right back. I, and I, I, I think I speak for the vast majority of members of the Democratic Caucus. We're not going to desert these young people. Uh, this, to my mind, is one of the great moral crises of our time. As you've indicated, these are young people who were raised in the United States. They spent almost their whole lives here. They know no other country. Uh, and as a result of Trump's precipitous action in September, when he rescinded uh, the executive order that Obama established, these young people, if we do not get our act together, will be subjected to the possibility of deportation. This is unspeakable. Deportation? It is unacceptable. Uh, when Trump uh, rescinded the executive order, uh, he said to Congress, you guys have got to fix it. We need legislation. Well, there have been some serious people, uh, Democrats and Republicans, who have been working on a variety of ideas to fix it. Uh, All right, let me, let me just, so you get it. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's their idea to fix it. It's called amnesty. So, you know, the caucus, they're going to have a moral discussion about uh, September and what to do to fix it, and it's amnesty. Yeah, it's going to be, uh, they all get to stay. And and green cards, that that's their version of fix it. This is the single most compelling part of the immigration debate for Democrats. Everything else they have to just, they have to, whether they want to admit it or not, they are, throwing American workers under the bus, throwing rule of law out the window, and generally lying through their teeth about what their motivations are for this whole thing. 
on dream you know on on daca and the dreamers and all this stuff they get to play the the morally righteous card and republicans are falling for it uh, republicans are not making a strong enough case to the american people i think although we'll see the great thing about my prediction for friday that there will be no shutdown and there will be no deal on daca they will just decide to talk about this at a later date is that at that point well for one you'll see if i'm right in a couple of days I was right the last time, for those of you who have been listening to me for a while. I like to say I'm, I'm right even when I think I'm wrong. But uh, They're also then going to say that the midterms, should they should leave it until after the midterms to make a decision. They just push hard decisions down the line. You know, the, the political parties in this country have become like college kids that are running up too much on their credit cards who are like, I got an idea. Open another credit card. Problem solved. That's what they're going to do. That's what I see as the most likely situation here. And that means that there's a lot more. If I'm right, there'll be a lot more time for the case to be made about why this should not happen, why DACA should not happen, and Republicans will be hopefully in a better position then. Uh, Because right now, there is no world in which the Democrats will agree to a... I don't think they'll agree to a wall. And that's a... Full stop. Either you get it or you don't. And Trump promised it and Republicans have said they will get it and we will know. But if Democrats bend the the knee on that one, they're going to have a tough time with their base come the midterms and they know it. They know it. So we'll see. My my Pat Leahy, I think, is getting better. Uh, uh, Mr. Speaker. uh, That's pretty much... That's that's Leahy right there, right? Senate, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh. Uh, we'll see. Oh, I want to revisit some of uh, the Cory Booker stuff from yesterday. Booker's uh, meltdown. That was quite a sight. And we'll also talk about Steve Bannon and the executive privilege debate. Ugh, this Mueller stuff just never, never goes away. I'd rather talk about how Apple, or when I say rather talk about it, I wish people would spend more time on how Apple is bringing in thir- is willing to pay rather thirty eight billion dollars on profits overseas, uh, so that it can repatriate uh, repatriate capital. So it plans to spend thirty billion in capital spending in the U.S. over five years. They'll create more than twenty thousand jobs. So one of the great things about the Trump approach to an America first economy is that there's also a PR side of this that you get there is also a component of this that is companies are going to want to look like they're playing ball here and doing what's right by america for their own reasons so yes it'll be in there it'll there'll be an economic incentive because of the tax cuts and the much more competitive corporate tax rate but there's also a public relations incentive for companies like apple and others to do right by the american people and american workers so Apple looks like it's stepping up here. Uh, we're going to talk about the continued media frenzy about Trump's health, just because it'll be kind of fun. We'll get into that in a few minutes, and then we'll talk Bannon and all that stuff. So uh, stay right there, team. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I kind of thought that we 
had gotten all of that we were going to get of the media crazy over Trump's health yesterday, there were real reporters from the biggest names in journalism in terms of their outlets who were like, um, excuse me, but President Trump is listed as an inch taller this time, and that's just, like, not okay? I was, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. We're arguing over whether the president is 6'2 or 6'3. It is literally not possible to care less about that than I do, right? It's not possible because I care about it zero amounts, zero amounts of care given for this. And yet there was more. Today you had Sarah Huckabee Sanders at a press conference and she had to, well, she was addressing this issue and you had all these different questions from members of the media where they're asking specifically about Trump's health. Can you assess the president's mental fitness for office? Are you yeah. ruling out things like early onset Alzheimer's? Are you looking at dementia? It sounds like he has to sniff. Do you have a life expectancy range for him? It's recommended that most baby boomers get screened for hepatitis C. Did you do a hep C test? Stroke concerns? When the president has his colonoscopy at the next physical, will he be sedated? Do you keep a tally of how much golf the U.S. president plays? The 25th Amendment. A lot of people in the country have been talking about it. Do you believe he is fit for duty? How a guy who eats McDonald's and fried chicks and all those Diet Cokes and who never exercises is in as good a shape as you say he's in. How much weight have you suggested the president lose? Cholesterol over 220. Do you hope to get it under 200? Does this president ask you about how he could follow his predecessor's example to be as fit as Barack Obama was? Can he be as fit as Barack Obama? Was that guy was he from a British outlet or like Norwegian or something? What was his deal? Do we know? Can you tell me, is the president, oh, excuse me for a moment, I have to make a guest appearance on Masterpiece Theater. Uh, sound like a British guy to me, I don't know. But anyway, can he be as fit as his predecessor, <laughs> Barack Obama? So now, they're com- now they miss Obama because Obama was in better shape than Trump. That's what you're getting from that one. Now he's, he's in better shape than Trump. Okay, okay, I mean, this is where we're going to go. Think about some of those questions. These are journalists. They know they're being televised. This is for a national audience. Uh, did the president get a hepatitis C screening? Like, really? You're asking this question? I would also note that the uh, the questions about President Ob- whether President Obama uh, knew the risks of being a heavy smoker. I don't remember many of those questions being asked. I don't remember people like, hey, does President Obama know the risks of emphysema and lung cancer from being a heavy smoker? And, and if some of you are saying, well, Buck, who the heck cares? I agree with you. But it is yet another instance of the double standard at work here. And they really are bitter that Trump eats cheeseburgers and drinks a lot of Diet Cokes. I will say, and some of you can disagree with me on this, it's fine. I think that if you're going to have sugar, have sugar of some kind, something natural. I do not believe in uh, artificial sweeteners, unless at some future point maybe they endorse this show. But in general, I do not believe in artificial sweeteners. I'm not somebody who's like, yeah, give me the fake sugar to put in my system. No, no, no. I'm not a, not a supporter of that as a general concept. Nonetheless, Trunk's, uh, Trunk, Trump is drinking Diet Cokes, and he's fine. You know, he's drinking Diet Cokes, eating cheeseburgers. Sounds great, actually. And they're mad about it. They're actually upset about this. Ah, 
this is what uh, this is what you get from them. This is what you can expect. And here we are hoping to have a more substantive policy discussion at some point. And the press is just focused on this. And, you know, you got, uh, hey, Dr. Siegel over at Fox with the following to say about this. Dr. Jackson is incredibly credentialed. He's an emergency room physician. He served in Iraq. He served at a trauma unit in Iraq. He was President Obama's doctor. He worked with President Bush as well. He's as nonpartisan as they come. He talked for an hour and then all of these questions. He said his heart is in great shape. He had an extensive stress test, an echocardiogram, a CAT scan of the chest. He actually submitted to a very extensive cognitive test called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test. That the really president volunteered volunteers. for He that scored test. 30 out of 30 at the age of 71, which I do not think I could do. And then, and then the most important thing of all, the psychiatric assessment, the doctor gave a very smart answer to that. He said, I spend almost day, every day with the president. Sandra, you know how you assess psychiatric behavior? By spending time with someone. It's not really something you can test. So he put his own reputation on the line here. And I think that, that he did, I think the media is doing a real disservice here to people with real mental right. illness and real cognitive issues and real dementia by targeting the president and making it seem like it's a diminishment of and some I know kind. You have- there's very little that, uh, there's really nothing I think that, that's too sacred to the left that would prevent them from using it to, uh, using an issue to attack the president if it was useful for them. There's nothing, you know, they, they will, they will uh, malign people with, or they'll be very insensitive to people with mental illness. They'll, you know, oh, Trump is, has, uh, has dementia, we need to get him out of office, all this stuff. They're just lying. They're just lying about it. Or, or they're making reckless... At some point, just like in criminal law, you could have a mens rea, a state of mind that is a guilty state of mind, right? You knew you were going to commit a crime. Or there's recklessness, like Hillary with her emails, where it doesn't matter if you wanted to do something bad or not, what you did was unacceptable based on the responsibility that a normal person would have. And the media is, at a minimum guilty of fake news recklessness or recklessness that results in fake news on a regular basis, right? So they they will run with the story without knowing. They don't know it's false, but they don't know it's true, and they don't care as long as it hurts Trump. And that's what's been happening here with all the medical stuff. It's just amazing, the questions. Could you make him as uh, wonderfully toned and fit as uh, Barack Obama? Could you find some way to... Teach him to be as skilled an athlete and golfer as Barack Obama was. I mean, this is the question the guy was asking at the end. How do we make him? He's comparing the physiques of presidents in a White House press conference, everyone. And we're the, yeah, the Republicans are the crazy ones. All right, we'll take some calls after this break. 844-900-2825. We'll have some follow-up on the Cory Booker. You, you, madam, are so... Mean, and I'm so upset. I'm just like, I want the cameras to see how upset I am about what was said. I'm just gonna pound the table because I'm Cory Booker and I'm sad. Um, we'll get into that, and pretty much just like that. Also, the Bannon executive privilege debate, and then a follow up to that Aziz Ansari story that really uh, got a lot of national attention. I would note uh, the day or two after we talked about it here, it it blew up quite a bit. Got some follow-up on that you'll you'll want to hear because it has to do with the Me Too movement and what's going on with the way the the way the media is treating relations between men and women in this country and everything else. So we got a lot ahead of us. Stay right there.
there have been some suggestions in the media today that the president does, in fact, suffer from heart disease, that his weight is larger than was indicated yesterday. Um, does the White House stand by Dr. Jackson's report? Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Jackson has been a White House physician for the last 12 years, uh, trusted by Presidents Bush, President Obama, and now uh, President Trump. He is the only doctor that has weighed in on this matter that has actually examined the president. And so uh, I think a doctor that has spent the amount of time with the president, uh, as Dr. Jackson has, is not only the most qualified, but the only credible source uh, when it comes to diagnosing any health concerns. And um, we support what he said yesterday 100 percent, that the president is in excellent health. And uh, I think he exhausted just about every question that you guys have and showed probably that he's in pretty good health, too, to stand up here for an hour and take questions. Like Trump. They're like healthers, you know, instead of birthers. They're healthers at this point. They they won't they won't give it up, right? They don't care. They they want to keep pushing. You know, maybe they miss some. Maybe the doctor missed something that a a reporter without an MD is going to stumble on somehow or something. Healthers, that's what we should call them. Uh, Charlie in Ocean City, Maryland. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Buck. I'm glad to listen to you again. Thank you, sir. And yeah, my point on. The Trump uh, physical, it went pretty normal, but he played the Stradivarius absolutely perfect. He cut the press off at the pass with the cognizant test, which he demanded a two-star admiral to perform. Yeah. And he got 100% on it. He blew the media completely out of the water. And, Charlie, let's think about this. What should we think now— of some of the very prominent Democrat and also some so-called Republican never Trump voices out there in the media and political ecosystem who were like, oh, we need to remove him because of 25th Amendment. Uh, Because he's not of sound mind, uh, he just aced a test that's supposed to make sure that he's of sound mind. He played the Stradivarius. He got the media. He got the Democrats. You realize this week that he got the Democrats to throw out to the American people exactly what they want on DACA. That's all they got. While he's got them in a turmoil, he's over here in the sideline with a roaring economy. Any politician will tell you it's the economy, stupid. Oh, yeah. If the midterms were held tomorrow, were held tomorrow, Republicans would increase their increase their uh, margin of control in the House and the Senate. I'm very confident of that. So they would win seats across the across the. I mean, not across the board, but they would win seats in both houses to be sure. Thank you very much for calling in, Charlie. Appreciate it, man. Uh, Charlie, with the Stradivarius talk, by the way, uh, they're only what are their uh, Stradivarius was creating that stuff. Is the most famous creator of wooden stringed instruments in history there are like 500 violins or so made by Stradivarius and maybe a little over a thousand total instruments and some of them go for they go for millions of dollars yeah I know I was actually uh, I did a little bit of uh, classical music training when I was growing up another story for another time Mark in Burlington North Carolina hey Mark hello Buck how are you I'm all right man I'm good good to hear from you 
Well, uh, my third time calling, I always appreciate your intelligence and your wisdom. You're very kind, sir. And I want you to give all our love to Miss Molly. I love the way that you include her in this whole thing and sign of a really healthy person. Thank you very much. She's out in Hawaii right now, and so she's doing a very good job of making me making sure that I, I think that, that she misses me a lot. But she's okay with the perfect weather and the beautiful scenery while it's, like, absolutely disgusting here in New York City. It's, like, right. sort and of raining and sort of snowing missiles. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, as long as those ballistic missiles can just kind of veer off a little bit, everything will be fine. Yeah, can Kim Jong-un calm down while my girlfriend's in Hawaii? Jeez. I mean, I mean. Okay, I've got a quick thing to say about DACA that nobody seems to say. And then I have to pick your brain on... What is wrong? And I think you will know it better than me, but I, I got a real bad problem with it. But anyway, okay. on DACA, eh, we're supposed to feel so sorry for these poor children who, through no fault of their own, found themselves across the border, you know, and here they are, and they've been raised here, and they're all going to be doctors and lawyers, and, you know, how can we possibly throw them out? Okay, I'll give you all that. But somebody brought them here, or they're like tumbleweeds that just blew across the border. 800,000 of them somehow got lost and fell into the United States by accident. But my point is, yeah, they may not be responsible, but somebody's responsible, and those people should go. They should be deported yesterday for dragging a minor and making that minor uh, a legal responsibility of the United States, and nobody talks about the people that got them here or what is their situation going to be once those DACA kids become legal or are the parents uh, l- l- a couple, legal? A few, a few things, Mark. One is, yeah, and, and to your point about parents or, or people that brought them here, if if somebody if somebody went and stole a whole bunch of money because I needed some kind of surgery— uh, and, and the police found out about it, as much as it might be a, a, an emotionally uh, and, and even, you could argue, you know, morally understandable thing to do to try to get me this money for the surgery, they're, they're not going to let them keep the money because they're, they've given it to me for the surgery. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the, the, an illegal act that results in a benefit for someone else does not immunize the benefactor from the effects of the law with regard to the illegal act which is just another way of saying, you know, if you rob a bank because you're going to give me money so I don't lose my house, uh, that doesn't mean I get to keep the money just because it would be nice if I got to keep my house, right? And then right. on the on the issue of DACA, I would also note, and, and this might be a little too, uh, I don't know, maybe this is a little too theoretical for some folks to really care all that much, but if we have birthright citizenship in this country, which just means that if you are born here and then you leave, and this is why there are these birth tourism hospitals with particular uh, predominantly on the West Coast and uh, East Asians who come into the country. They get they have birth uh, here and then they have citizenship. And then that person can go back to China as, a, as one of the big countries for this, live there as long as they want. And then when they want to go to school or anything else, they're U.S. citizens. If just the act of being born in America makes you a citizen, which is a whole other debate whether that should be the case or not. But currently that is that is the way it is treated under law. Then the absence of being born in this country and any other legal uh, you know, legal reason for you to be a citizen should be enough to make you not a citizen. Do you see what I'm saying? 
the, yeah. you know, coming here when you're 10, if just being born here legally makes you a citizen, not being born here but living here a lot starting when you're a young kid can't be enough to make you a citizen. Do you see what I'm saying? Correct. Yeah. I agree 100%. Yeah. But I want to get to my second point if I can. Right, sure, Mark. Go ahead. I like Mark. Mark, go ahead. All right. Well, I've heard the old expression that, you know, you can indict a ham sandwich. And to tell you the truth, I listen to talk radio a lot. And there's a lot of really good, smart, investigative journalism going on right now. And I I hear them finding out one thing after another of people that have just done, you know, the Clinton Foundation, Huma Abedin, and GPS Fusion, and Uranium One. And, I mean, there's enough stuff that I could easily say 250 crimes have been committed, that there's enough information out there right now that these people should be indicted and convicted and the key thrown away. However, in the process of all of this information being thrown at us, it appears that no one is ever held accountable. And so my question is, number one, we hear we have these congressional hearings after congressional hearings after congressional hearings, but as far as I can tell, it's a toothless dog. No, the worst that can happen is you could be held in contempt of Congress. Okay, well, what does that mean? As far as I can tell, it means nothing. And then when you talk about the Washington D.C. We got crowd, thirty seconds, anyway, Mark, before we got to go out. So go ahead. All right, Washington crowd, D.C. If you're going to have a grand jury, is it going to be made up of people from Washington, D.C.? Because 97% of them vote yes. for Democrats. Yeah, the answer is yes. And and also on, on how can, and thank you, Mark, for your call, and thank you for calling in. The answer to why, like the Clintons, for example, yes, you can indict a ham sandwich. Why haven't the Clintons been indicted? Because the prosecutor has to want to indict the ham sandwich. And you got a lot of Democrat uh, partisan prosecutors out there, and particularly in the DOJ, and in this ham sandwich Hillary analogy— Hello. Um, there's no will to indict, even though there has been violation of statutes on the books. We're talking Bannon, Booker and Banfield coming up. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. Right, we, are we fight for the truth in a team effort. Roger, roger. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I talked briefly about the Trump health situation. The healthers, as I'm calling them now, who refuse to accept the very uh, esteemed medical professional's assessment of the president's health that, we, uh, health that we heard earlier in the week. you got healthers who are still thinking that there's going to be a way that they can get Trump out of office with the 25th Amendment. And it's CNN's, I don't know, resident health expert or something, Sanjay Gupta, he got in on this, too. Just to be clear, though, yeah. Dr. Jackson, he is taking cholesterol-lowering medication. He has evidence of heart disease, and he's borderline obese. Can you characterize that as excellent health? 
I mean, I think based on his current cardiac, uh, you know, uh, study, I mean, his heart is very healthy. Those are all you know, things that we're looking at with regards, well, you know, you're, you're a nurse surgeon with, you know, there, there's, there's stroke issues there too, but, you know, we're focusing on his cardiac, uh, you know, uh, health and, and, you know, as an indicator of what the rest of his, uh, you know, uh, vascular health might be like. He has very, uh, he has no evidence of peripheral vascular disease. His heart exam, like I said, I think was, uh, was in the excellent category for his age uh, and sex. So I think that despite that, that you've mentioned, I think that we're doing a, doing a decent job with his cholesterol. I would say that his, the dose of his cholesterol medicine is very low. Uh, he takes a very low dose of his cholesterol medicine right now, so we have a lot of room to increase that. Most cardiologists would put a patient on a larger dose of cholesterol medicine than that to start with, so we're going to up that, and I suspect that when we do that, his cholesterol, his LDL will fall uh, even more. And then, you know, uh, like I said, you know. Yeah, uh, you get the idea, the right? The doc is saying, okay, no big that, deal. Uh, you know, I'm that, aware, and, and no big deal. We've also got uh, Karen on the line from Grand Rapids, Michigan, who's a cardiology nurse. So she might have some uh, insight to share on this. Karen, thanks for calling in. Hey, Buck, thank you. Um, I just couldn't stand to hear the people one more minute on CNN ask questions. Um, I just want to say normally what we would do with someone like Donald Trump, we look at functional capacity, how you feel, what you can do, stamina, symptoms, and then your overall well-being and all his studies are normal. I think it's so irresponsible when they get on television and say, oh, he has heart disease. Most people, if you live to be 70-something years old, you're going to have a little heart disease. And that doesn't mean anything. So I, I get so upset when I watch that because people that aren't educated are going to hear this Sanjay Gupta guy who's going to be talking about having babies next week, tell everybody Donald Trump has heart disease. Isn't it also, I mean, just from your, from your perspective, Karen, you deal with people's health all the time. You're a cardiology nurse. Uh, yeah. It's really disconcerting, I think, to watch so many adults who are clearly rooting for deteriorating health for the president of the United States. And, and it's right. obvious that they are disappointed that Trump does not have any medical problems. I think that's I think that's sick. It was so ridiculous. And and, and Obama was a closet smoker and ate fried chicken and French fries. No one had anything to say about that. Donald Trump has been very open about rejecting any type of vices. He's a very healthy person. And um, in general, he is. I mean, we're all going to have something as we get a little bit older. But, yeah, I, I was so annoyed when I watched them. Most physicians would take that for about 10 minutes and then just say, okay, listen, people, I know you think you're a doctor and you went to, you know, University of Missouri and got a journalist degree. I, I, I can't believe he put up with that as long as he did. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for calling in to give us some actual okay. expert uh, opinion on, on what it means to say that. You know, Trump has some early signs of, of a deteriorating heart. Well, he's 70 years old, everybody. That's, I just also think it's really, it is really gross that there are some people press. You know, well, I mean, you know, maybe, you know, did, did, did you guys, did you, did you specifically check to see if he has leprosy? I mean, I'm just saying, you know, did, did, you, did you run the leprosy test on the president? I just want to know. I just want to know. You know, I'm just asking questions. That's basically what they were doing. That's really, oh, God, people. No, no, no honor, no integrity at the press, right? Just warring propaganda fiefdoms all the time. Uh, okay, I want to go back to a little bit of 
yesterday the Cory Booker, which we started the show with, which I know some of you are like, really, Buck? Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, which is usually like, you know, it's really not that interesting as things go. But it got interesting because Cory Booker was like so upset. I was just like, you know, I just, Mr. President, I'm so sad. You're so upsetting. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know what happened there, but Cory Booker was very sad, apparently, and wanted everybody to know it. But also, he was speaking to a, or speaking, he was shouting at, and he was shouting and yelling and demeaning a woman in a nationally televised congressional hearing, which you would think that the left maybe would have a problem with because they have this whole thing about mansplaining, not to be confused with manspreading, which is a problem for some of us on the subway where guys don't like to sit with their legs close together and people say don't manspread. And I've even read feminists. This is true. I've read some feminists who maybe these were, uh, you know, what are you, essentially written as a farce. But anyway, there's some stuff out there about how when a man manspreads on the subway, he is assaulting the space around him and it's it's a it's a way of showing male dominance and it, it ties into like gender stuff and whatever. Mansplaining, I guess, is kind of what you could say I do for three hours here on the radio, or maybe it's bucksplaining. I like to bucksplain. But the argument here is that you had Cory Booker who's out there and he's yelling at this woman and very in a very demeaning fashion. Was he in fact mansplaining? Well, uh, you had Tapper and Cory Booker having a discussion about it. Here's how that went. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Republican National Committee, uh, which this afternoon uh, nicknamed you derogatory uh, Cory, uh, and they wrote, um, picture it, a male Republican senator spends his entire 10 minutes mansplaining. The female DHS secretary about immigration policy throws around the term conscientious stupidity, <coughs> yells at her the only time she tries to speak and concludes his diatribe without even asking her to respond. The RNC seems to be suggesting that when it comes to a male senator berating a woman captain official... I want to notice something really quickly. This is important. You see the speed and cadence with which Tapper is going through what the RNC said. That's not an accident. He goes through that all very quickly so that it's clear without him saying it that this is barely even worth mentioning, right? You know, the RNC said this, that, and the other thing, and they said a bunch of other things or whatever, but, but I want you to respond, Cory Booker. I want you to now take this opportunity to shoot down the terrible RNC and let you look good. Which that, That's what that's all about. But always pay attention to the way that these TV journalists, the way that they, I'm not, I'm not just getting down into the, the weeds here for no reason, the way that they quote things and the speed and the cadence with which they, they quote other people is always a subtle but very powerful signal to the audience about how the anchor feels about something. And notice he, he's reading it like it's, oh, it's this thing that's trash, they're saying blah, 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 blah. So Cory Booker, I'll give you the floor now to just tear apart the RNC. Continue, please. The double standard uh, depending on the political party. Well, first of all, I'm glad they're finally attacking me. Uh, they, they attack senators almost every single day. Uh, but it's a little insulting to say that uh, I should be treating cabinet secretaries one way or another depending upon their gender. 
Uh, and so these are political operatives. I, I wish they would come out and deal with real issues of inequality when it comes to women, like equal pay for equal work. Uh, but this is politics. Uh, I, I'm standing here as a United States senator in my official capacity, challenging uh, total non-answer. Who's lying before the Senate on an issue that affects my state as well as this nation, as well as us internationally? Something still not an answer. Um, as her lying about overt bigotry coming out of the and he's the calling House. her a liar. You'll notice the, the Jake Tapper set up there, which he went through very quickly, which is a way of showing that it's nonsense, 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 RNC, blah, 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 RNC. But what do you say to that? He didn't he, he could have stopped and said the RNC referred specifically to you mansplaining to a and, and that would sit in people's minds. Yeah, you work. I mean, if there is a thing as mansplaining, if there is such a thing, which I would argue there, that's a nonsense term, but we're going to pretend it exists. Did you mansplain, Corey? I mean, were you mansplaining or not? No answer to that whatsoever. He goes, oh, you know, they're attacking me. And then he transitions into just some other stuff. It has nothing to do with anything. Because if there is such a thing as mansplaining, that is what Cory Booker did to Kirsten Nielsen. If it exists, he definitely did it yesterday. And I just would note that they can't have it both ways. You know, you can't tell us that there's no such thing. And that's what he was doing there. He's saying, well, I'm not going to treat men and women differently in the Senate based upon their gender. Well, hold on a second. Whatever happened to she persisted? Oh, she, she persisted, if you remember, from Mitch McConnell. Or unfortunately, she, she, she persisted. And then you have that whole she persisted, like, hashtag, and uh, Elizabeth Warren was raising money off of that and everything. But the whole concept behind that was that you know, mean old uh, white Republican mansplainer Mitch McConnell was silencing a woman. So you see, this is just another instant, instance of the Democrats wanting to have a, a standard that is malleable, a standard that can change based on whatever they need for political reasons at any given time. You know, they didn't say, oh, she, she persisted. And then Elizabeth Warren said, you know, I, I would like to be her. She and Hillary sound the same, by the way. I would like to be treated exactly as a man. So I'm not going to raise money off this. Elizabeth Warren out. No, that's not how it went. She's about as charming as that. How do Hillary and Elizabeth Warren both sound like uh, Iago from Aladdin? I don't know, but they do for whatever reason. Uh, but you, that's uh, let's just be clear. We don't know what the rules are. We can't know what the rules are when it comes to mansplaining because they change them all the time. And in this case, it just is too obvious that that's what went on there. I, get, I think it's dumb, the whole notion of mansplaining, but they won't even use it as a consistent standard. You know, I will not treat her differently because she's a woman. Really? Well, if that's the case, then there's no such thing as mansplaining. So what do you, what do you got for me there, Senator Booker? Nothing? That's what I thought. All right, uh, I want to talk to you about this. I'm talking about the Bannon thing a little bit, but the Ashley Banfield Aziz Ansari situation, very interesting. Uh, and and it's also a window into the mindset of these, what are they called, third wave feminists now? The millennial, the, the hardline millennial feminists, how they think and how they, I'll get into it. Because a, a feminist publication wrote about Aziz Ansari's date based on an anonymous source and it was meant to humiliate him. As publicly as possible. And you would think now, okay, well, so he doesn't get to respond. I mean, that seems, or he can't respond directly to the person. 
he should I think he should out the person if he hasn't already, by the way. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get into that because then Ashley Banfield got into the discussion. There, there's a whole. The setup right now, you're like, Buck, what do you just trust me on this one? We'll get to it in a few minutes, but maybe we'll talk about the Bannon situation first and and all that stuff. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck If you would like to uh, chat about any of this stuff or anything else that's on your mind, we're going to hit a quick break here, team. We'll be right back. This is the same person who accused two of the president's family members of committing treasonous acts. So, of course, we're going to want to cross-examine him on what he thinks was treasonous. But if everything's off limits, that's a that's a really short conversation. So I take it you asked him about the treasonous comment and he did not answer it, right? That's I, I tried to. Well, that's the beauty of it. He answered it initially, and then apparently his lawyer didn't like the fact that he answered it. So then he clammed up. I, I, that is an eminently reasonable, legitimate question. If you're going to accuse somebody of a crime for which you can be put to death, what is your evidence for that? So uh, I don't know anyone who wouldn't ask that question. He started to answer it, and then his lawyers get it, got involved, and that usually messes up almost everything. And that's why we were there for a long time yesterday, but we're going to have to go back tomorrow. You sound frustrated. Do I have that right? <laughs> I, I, am, I am frustrated whenever people assert privileges that do not exist. Uh, and I am really frustrated when witnesses have all the time in the world to talk to the media on and off the record, and they can help people write books, but they can't talk to the representatives that are elected by their fellow citizens. I mean, picture that. He's happy to tell an author about treasonous, unpatriotic acts, but he won't tell members of Congress when he's pressed on it. I'm, I'm not aware of any privilege that lets you pick and choose who you answer questions. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with uh, Trey Gowdy here. And I, I generally I generally like Trey Gowdy. I, I dislike politicians as a general rule. Uh, not a personal thing. I just don't like what they what they do and how they act. Uh, but Trey Gowdy is generally on, on my good side. Thank you, Buck. We need to be friends. Um, but, you know, I, I got to say... There is a there's a big there's a big issue here that he doesn't seem to be taking into account, and that is that the whole Russia collusion probe is about political payback and political embarrassment for the Trump administration, and getting Bannon to have to answer questions about certain deliberations that may have occurred with the Trump administration about strategy may be an effort to and this look this is just my take on this, and I'm not a I'm not an expert on executive privilege, but then again, nobody else you're going to listen to on radio, period, is. Uh, but, you know, 
it's meant to they're trying to get stuff that embarrasses through this Mueller probe and all these different. I know this is the congressional investigation side of it, it's not the Mueller probe, but anything that comes out in Congress that could embarrass Trump is going to get leaked to the media right away. And I just think that we need to be a little careful here that there's not a complete breakdown. I mean, is there no such thing as executive privilege when it comes to people around Trump in transition because of the Russia collusion investigation and, and which is these congressional inquiries are also really tied into. I don't see this as being quite as quite as clear as some others uh, do on this issue, because I, I think I think that there's obviously going anything that he said that was damaging about Trump, even from just a political strategy perspective, would be immediately leaked to the media. And presidents do have and, and have exerted pretty expansive executive privilege in the past for deliberations with them. So uh, th- this is what I this is what CNN is reporting on this today. Just take it for what it's worth. President Trump's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon, faced angry lawmakers from both parties during a contentious interview that stretched more than 10 hours on Tuesday as he was hit with subpoenas on multiple fronts and was accused by a top Democrat of agreeing to a White House gag order. Bannon confirmed to the House Intelligence Committee that he was issued a subpoena from special counsel Robert Mueller to testify before a grand jury, according to multiple sources familiar with the matter. He was also slapped with a new subpoena on Tuesday from the committee itself, according to Representative Mike Conway, uh, the Texas Republican leading the committee's Russia probe, and committee chairman Devin Nunes. So... Schiff said it was, quote, a gag order and an audacious move by the White House to assert that at a later date they may seek to invoke executive privilege. Bannon's attorney. Well, so maybe I, I guess the argument here is that he spoke about it with other people. And so therefore, executive privilege can't apply. But we, you don't know what. I and mean, look, it's tricky because you don't know what he said to other people necessarily versus what he would say in cross-examination uh, by by Congress. Bannon's attorney told the committee that Bannon would answer questions when he goes to special counsel because executive privilege would not apply. Yeah. So when he's in front of Mueller, he's going to answer questions. Conway said the subpoena for documents and testimony remains in effect and the committee expects to seek answers to its remaining questions. All right. So they're going to force Bannon to talk one way or another. Um, I, I, maybe, maybe this is just bad in grandstanding. I got to think a little bit more about this and what the, what the play is here. Um, because Bannon was refusing to answer questions and talk about communications with key officials. Uh, so, and he would not discuss what information they may have leaked to the news media, according to Schiff. Yes, yeah, they're trying to get the, Adam Schiff is, by the way, thought of as being a very big leaker. And they're trying to get to information that really has nothing to do with Russia collusion here, but just would be. Fun for the media to know to come back and, and hit Trump with, I think. That's what that's all about. So I'll keep an eye on this one. CNN thinks this is amazing. I don't think it's e- even really worth much of our time, but I'll, I'll continue to follow it. I want to follow up on the Aziz Ansari story, though, because this has gotten a lot of traction. This is where the the, me, the biggest Me Too movement story this week, and maybe even this, well, I shouldn't say the month because I can't remember what the earlier one was. Biggest one this week by far is this Aziz Ansari thing. So let's get on to that issue and Ashley Banfield and a whole bunch of stuff. It'll be interesting. So stay right there. I'll be back. 
Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. So the Me Too movement was bound to run into some excesses. We knew that would happen. There would be some innocents that were caught up in the frenzy of the moment. There would be some men whose reputations, careers, and who knows what else would be destroyed by it. Uh, that it, it, it claimed, and rightfully so, some monsters in the, uh, in the early days, but uh, now it has gone on well beyond, I think, whatever mandate that it had to raise awareness about sexual harassment, to also sometimes target people for much lesser behavior and to create unsustainable and irrational standards of what's acceptable conduct between men and women, right? Or for men towards women. And this, I remember when the, I read that Aziz Ansari piece in Babe magazine, which I would not think would be the name of a feminist magazine, but it is, babe.net. And it got viral attention because it was a very detailed and explicit and very personal recounting of a sexual encounter with a, a very well-known celebrity. Not like, whatever, it doesn't matter. We're not super famous, but he's a famous guy. And it was, uh, a lot of people I think read it and thought, is this now what's going to happen? That every uh, you know, third wave left-wing feminist who goes on a date with somebody who is a prominent person can then afterwards just, if they didn't like something or they didn't enjoy it, just humiliate the person, and that's considered part of a of a, politi- a politically sanctified movement. Well, the answer is that there was some pushback even from leftists and Democrats on this. And among them was, many of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but I know who she is because I used to work at CNN uh, for a short time, Ashley Banfield of CNN. And here's what she said about the woman who was the accuser, unnamed still, in the piece about Aziz Ansari. Let's take a moment to reflect on what you claim was the worst night of your life, end quote. You had a bad date. Your date got overly amorous. After protesting his moves, you did not get up and leave right away. You continued to engage in the sexual encounter. By your own clear description, this was not a rape, nor was it a sexual assault. By your description, your sexual encounter was unpleasant. It did not send you to the police. It did not affect your workplace or your ability to get a job. So I have to ask you, what exactly was your beef? That you had a bad date with Aziz Ansari. Is that what victimized you to the point of seeking a public conviction and a career-ending sentence against him? Is that truly what you thought he deserved for your night out? Uh, pretty good stuff from Ashley Banfield, I gotta say. I was like, oh, Ashley Banfield, wow. I give credit where it's due. I, I think that was a very astute analysis of the situation from a CNN reporter. So, okay, laying it down. And, and that was the point of the article, by the way, to humiliate and destroy Aziz Ansari's career and I read it, uh, or I saw it described by a writer at The Atlantic as a form of revenge porn. And the only way to really stop this from happening is if there's a, a social prohibition on it, meaning that people are like, whoa, hold on. You don't 
you know, you don't go on a date with somebody and they don't do anything that is criminally wrong and then go into intimate graphic detail about it to just embarrass somebody, make them look bad. I mean, legally, although maybe you could be sued for defamation, but yeah, legally you're allowed to do it, but we shouldn't think this is okay. We shouldn't encourage it. There should be social sanctions against people that do this just because they're trying to settle the score or get even or be nasty or whatever, right? Understand that revenge porn is also, well, until they made it illegal, it was just you posting photos of somebody or a video of somebody that you had an intimate relationship with after the fact. There's there Until we decided that that was just too heinous and destructive to allow, it was completely legal. And it is still legal in a lot of states. Uh, and, I, and I think we just as a society, or at least in some states, they've decided, you know what? First Amendment has some limits, and we're going to decide that there, this is one of those limits, that you can't ruin somebody's public reputation based on using what were, you know, intimate photographs or video or whatever without consent. And, and I understand it, and I think it makes a lot of sense. But this is just a version of that. This is just an, a, a verbal description to a journalist, quote-unquote journalist, although I do that with a lot of journalists, but you know, somebody that writes for what is essentially a glorified blog, and they invite, and that's something that we should all be very clear on. They invited the author of the piece. Remember, not this is not the accuser. This is not the woman that had the bad date with Aziz Ansari. But they invited the the Babe.net writer. I mean, it's almost hard to Babe.net. I got to th- somebody told me somebody wrote for Babe.net. I would have a very different sense of what stuff you know may be on that site. You know, it, you might think like. I don't know. You think of babes. Well, babe is a very general term, but you know what I mean. Uh, I would not think it's a left wing feminist site, you know, whereas when I did a story a while ago or story, I did a uh, a segment here on the show a while ago about I think it was uh, Hypatia, which is a journal of feminist philosophy. Hypatia being named for a female Greek mathematician. Uh, that made sense. I'm like, yeah, that that's a name that sure I could see that being for a journal of feminist philosophy, name it after an ancient Greek female mathematician that literally nobody who doesn't write for this thing has ever heard of. Uh, but anyway, the woman, young woman who wrote this piece in Babe magazine that went totally viral and that I told you about earlier in the week, and that is now, I think, emblematic of the excesses and the destructive tendency of a Me Too movement without limits. Some of the Me Too movement stuff has been very important and good. I understand that, but some of it now is going over the line. Here is what she wrote to a CNN booker who asked her to go on the show without, I suppose, understanding that the CNN booker is not, this is not an off-the-record thing, is under no obligation to not share this, and the CNN booker did. So here's how the author of the Babe.net piece responded to a request to go on Ashley Banfield's show. And the author's name is uh, Way. I forget her. Katie Way, I believe. Here we go. Quote, it's an unequivocal no from me. The way your colleague Ashley, someone I'm certain no one under the age of 45 has ever heard of, by the way, ripped into my source directly was one of the lowest, most despicable things I've ever seen in my entire life. Shame on her. Shame on HLN, which is the sister channel of CNN. Ashley could have talked to me. She could have talked to my editor or my publication, but instead 
she targeted a 23-year-old woman in one of the most vulnerable moments of her life, someone she's never met before, for, and she throws in some curse there, for a little attention. I hope the ratings were worth it. I hope the approximately 500 retweets on the single news write-up made that burgundy lipstick bad highlights second-wave feminist has been feel really relevant for a little while. That's all a reference to Banfield at HLN. She disgusts me, disgusts in all caps, and I hope she has more distance from the moment. When she has more distance from the moment, she has enough of a conscience to feel remotely ashamed. Doubt it, but still. Must be nice to piggyback off the fact that another woman was brave enough to speak up and add another dimension to the societal conversation about sexual assault. Uh, Grace, her source, wouldn't know how that feels because she struck out on this alone because she's the bravest person I've ever met. I would never, all caps, go on your network. I would never even watch your network. No woman my age would ever watch your network. I will remember this for the rest of my career. I'm 22 and so far not too shabby, exclamation point. And I will laugh the day you fold. If you could let Ashley know I said this and that she is no holds barred the reason, it'd be a real treat for me. Thanks, Katie Way of Babe.net. That is the most progressive millennial letter I think I've ever From the unnecessary profanity to the attacking, as a feminist, attacking another woman's appearance for no reason whatsoever, to then saying, I'm basically a big deal and, like, going to be a bigger one, so I'll remember this, to then saying, please make sure you tell the host of the show that that she's the reason I'm not going on. Woo! Man, that was the most progressive feminist thing, progressive millennial feminist thing I, I think I've ever seen. It was, that was a doozy. That was pretty amazing. So, yeah, yeah. if you spend any time on babe.net, you will uh, see some of the, the scribbles, so to speak, of Miss, Ms. Way. And I'm just going to leave that there for now. Ashley in Fort Hood, Texas. What's up, Ashley? Hey, Buck, I absolutely love your show. I'm with you until the end of our days. But, Thank you. Um, you know, I appreciate that you bring these things out um, on your show because we get another look into this weird extra-dimensional society that we've morphed into. It's totally 1984. It's totally Animal Farm on a very low-key level. And, you know, rather you're liberal or you're conservative – you should be concerned if we can morph into this society and pin someone as something and then ruin them. That's not fair. I don't think it's fair that they're going after Trump's uh, health. That's personal. Um, he's fine. He's doing the job. Let him do the job. Um, <laughs> I think feminists and progressives have, have actually, like, ruined our society. They have... They've raised a generation of, excuse me, I'm, I'm shaking now because it just makes me so angry and so concerned that I have to usually take a few days off from listening to the news because I can't believe we're here, especially in the United States, the most free society, and we're living in chains socially. 
You know, f- feminism is 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 a destructive force in society today. That that I would I would agree with. I would defend that statement, uh, and uh, I I would make that statement and then defend it against anyone. It's because it's turned into something else, right? There's a difference between equality and victimology, and victimology has become the mantra of contemporary feminism. And it's just it's so at some level it's so bizarre and and such a weak intellectual argument because. Uh, you know, men and women, we, we, we there's a very important, you know, we go together. Men that I know really like women, you know. We all have moms and sisters and wives. And it, it, this notion that there's this widespread female oppression in America that has to be fought against by these uh, sort of vanguard feminist uh, praetorians or something. It's just crazy. But they believe it. And I think that I think that the whole this all stems from the fact that they don't teach their children how to accept rejection. So they think that everything is a trophy for them. Everyone gets a trophy. Everybody gets a car. It's it's not like that in real life. And when you raise a child and they don't understand no, they don't understand you didn't win, but you keep on trying, then they expect to get everything that they desire. And that's that's the society that we're we're raising, the thank, generation we're raising. Thank you, Ashley, for your perspective. Thank you for being uh, so supportive of the show. Um, thank you very much for calling in. I would just, you know, there's one thing that I, uh, in my, my the tender old age of 36, that I would offer, and that is one of the most destructive things that a person can do to their in, in their own life, uh, other than you know uh, being addicted to drugs and there's obviously a lot of stuff, but a, a very destructive frame of mind to have is to always find an excuse. Inability to be honest with oneself leads to all kinds, it it leads to problems with drugs and problems with alcohol abuse and everything else, that you have to be willing to take stock of what's going on in your life, in your private life, in your public life, your at work, at home, and what's really happening here, and don't fall into the trap. Look, it's one that I have to fight against too, all of us do. But the trap of always having that excuse, it's always someone else's fault. And it's not if it was a question of being fault. You know, it's not that you should bl- it's not that people should blame themselves for what's not going right or whatever. But it's just be honest about what's happening and seek ways to make it better and to take action into your own hands instead of because if, if you find other people to blame all the time. And this is what feminists do. This is making me think about it. You know, it, it, look, I think a, a lot of feminists do have problems uh, with men. I've seen it. I've known some. I've unfortunately even been on a few dates with some in my life. And a lot of them have bad relationships with their fathers. A lot of them have had negative experiences dating men. And instead of t- taking a step back and say, well, it's unfortunate I had a bad relationship or still have one with my father, but I should work to separate that from my future you know, male relationships. Or, you know, I've had problems dating. You know, maybe it's the, the problem is the attitude of the of the female. And not the men that she's going out with. That That is also possible. But people don't want to take stock of their own insufficiencies and insecurities. It's much, much easier. It's so palatable to sell it as well. It's someone else's fault. Someone else did something wrong. And it's a very destructive philosophy, but very appealing for a lot of people. And it's really the heart of feminism. All right, I got to run to a break. Or we're going to run over time. Stay right there.
Ms. President, did you say that you want more people to come in from Norway? Did you say that you wanted more people to come in from Norway? Is that true, Ms. President? I want them to come in from everywhere, everywhere. Thank you very much, everybody. Just Caucasian or white countries, sir, or do you want people to come in from other parts of the world where there are people of color? Out. Jim, thank you. <laughs> so we just want to replay that because yesterday the audio wasn't as good. And, and that's just the perfect... That's perfect. Acosta is basically, you know, hey, Mr. President, are you are you are you, are you a racist? Can we just get you on the record that, that you'll say you're a racist? And Trump's just like out. Perfect. That's how you got to deal with Acosta, the White House chief grandstander for CNN. That is, I think, I think that might actually be his official, his official title. So uh, I wanted, I, I missed the, yesterday. It was a little, little uh, tough to hear. So we wanted to give you another shot at that one. Coming up in the next hour, just to give you a little bit of a preview of where we're going with all this, we are going to be joined by a very talented writer, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, currently at Commentary, uh, Sarab Amari. He's been on before. He's going to talk to us about Venezuela and the war in Venezuela between the Catholic Church and the uh, despotic and, and moronic Maduro regime. I mean, they're both incompetent and uh, iron-fisted, the Maduro regime, so those two things often go hand-in-hand hand with government. And then uh, I'll talk to you a bit about uh, some ideas I have for the Shield Tide podcast to kind of expand it out. So we'll want to know what your feedback is on that. But probably the single most fun thing I'm looking forward to talking to you all about, which is going to come up in just a little bit here, is Half-Baked Flake, uh, Jeff Flake today, who was just setting new records for sanctimony and and sli- unctuous, slimy, self-indulgent nonsense where he's attacking Trump and, and saying that he's you know one of the he's acting like one of the worst dictators in history and everything else we're gonna have some fun uh, with with the Jeff Flake stuff from earlier today it was on I was d- doing some research and, and some work at home and I saw it was on the TV I'm like wait what is this guy doing now and then I saw the room was practically empty I'm like ah yes Jeff Flake just trying to audition for that morning weekend show at msnbc that he's hoping to get i guess maybe uh, or, or the book you know jeff flake hashtag resistance so we've got a lot of stuff to talk about oh and also uh a news story that was really puzzling i read it i thought how could that be happening but you got to stay with me for that welcome back to the buck sexton show everybody I-, I thought that this might be a hoax this is a common problem that i'm having these days where i, I see a headline and my brain goes to the, you know, that goes to fake news, right? <laughs> and I don't mean about Trump necessarily even, too. I just see something and I say, well, that has to be maybe the media outlets overselling it or there's something I'm missing here. And I figured it can't actually, because I was seeing little bits and pieces. This is what happens when you are following different commentators on social media and you all follow each other and you're talking, which is what ends up happening in the, in the news business a lot these days right it's like all the kids are having one conversation at the at the cafeteria table on twitter and facebook and the stuff about people biting into dishwashing pods i figured that can't be something that's really happening but it turns out and this is from cnn so it turns out that's going on here's what they write it used to be that washing your kid's mouth out with soap was seen as a punishment now authorities are trying to keep teens from doing just that. Teens have been increasingly biting into laundry pods, with some posting the videos online as part of a challenge. 
This is according to a statement by the American Association of Poison Control Centers. The results can be potentially harmful or even deadly. In the first 15 days of the new year, poison control centers received 39 such calls, the same number they received in all of 2016. Now, okay, I understand we're not talking about big numbers here. This is not like when I have discussions with you and I want to revisit it, uh, which we'll have some year-end data for 2017 on the issue of opioids and the, the opioid pandemic in this country, I believe approximately 60,000 people died last year, which is just astonishing. And I've been doing some research, which is something I'll bring into the show as well, about uh, the the origins of narco-trafficking into this country. Fascinating stuff about Sinaloa in Mexico, which has been a place that poppies were grown for quite a long time. And the original drug kingpins of Sinaloa taking... The resin from the poppy, which is how you make heroin or how you make any any opioid, it's the brown resin from the poppy plant, which is kind of a pinkish-colored flower. Uh, the original kingpins of that drug uh, trade from Sinaloa into the United States with heroin in back in the 1920s or so were Chinese, and they were bringing the drugs through their networks across the border into San Francisco, Los Angeles, the West Coast in particular. And they were then chased off and, and violently attacked and by uh, Mexicans who wanted to take over that drug trade. But it's fascinating. I did not realize that the, that the Chinese specifically were running, and when I say the Chinese, a number of Chinese drug kingpins were running these opioid, op- or, or not opioid, these opium operations in the United States back in the 1920s. The drug problem in this country is over 100 years old, and it's very interesting to look at the uh, the history of it. So that'll be something I talk about more as we get into uh, opioids. I didn't even think that, I didn't realize that Sinaloa was a place where they were growing much in the way of poppies. Uh, and for a while, Afghanistan was where I think 95% of the global poppy supply was located based on the open source that I've seen on it. And the shift from poppy cultivation in Afghanistan to Mexico is just a function of pure economics. Uh, heroin became much more popular, heroin derivatives. Now it's all chemical stuff, right? So a lot of people are taking the, the drugs that are just the opioids that are uh, chemically based. But the uh, Mexican cartels figured out, hey, why do we have to deal with the very long supply chain, if you will, of, of illicit, of illegal drugs from uh, South Asia, through the former Soviet republics to Europe and then uh, America, when we could grow it right here and bring it across the border. That's why you've seen a big spike in opium cultivation just south of the border in Mexico. Anyway, sorry, I, 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 that was a bit of a digression, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the narco war situation, the cartels on our border. And I have a theory that the PRI, which is the Revolutionary Party of Mexico, which was the the party in Mexico for over 70 years. Uh, it, was, it was a democracy, but there was one party that was the only party. And then you had Vincente Fox and the war against the drug cartels started and America was very involved in that. I think the, the PRI, which I believe is what they, they call it, which is the Revolutionary Party in Mexico, which is now back in charge with Peña Nieto, uh, has gone back to the previous 
agreement of sorts with the cartels whereby keep it quieter and we'll leave you alone more. Now, that's not to say that Mexico doesn't still have a lot of violence, but that's cartel on cartel stuff. And and there's always going to be violence when you have this level of illegal drug, uh, drug trade going on. But it's not like it was at the the height in like 2007, 2008. I mean, 50 or 60,000 people were killed in the narco wars uh, of the Bush years and into the early years of the Obama administration. And not that much has changed in, changed in Mexico. So there must be some reason for the drop in at least known violence there. And I think it's because the, I'm not saying at the very top, although I don't know, I think it is because the Revolutionary Party in Mexico has turned a blind eye to a lot more. And this, pro- this, is, this is probably explosive stuff to say if, you know, one wanted to, uh, eh, I, I can't prove it yet. It's just a hunch. This is a hunch. But I'm looking into it. I'm looking into it more. Because that was the case before. So that, it's not like I'm coming up with some crazy conspiracy. That was the situation in Mexico. Anyway, that's opioids. Separate topic. I just went in that direction because that's something I'm doing research on when I'm not doing history research for uh, Shields High. And but then I saw this thing about the, the pods and that people. So it's not a huge number of people that are dying from this, but it's young kids, teenagers. And I worry that you know, social media has such a profound effect on everyone's lives. But also I, when I was a teenager, we did not have social media. It did not exist. Facebook came along when I was in college, and it was very – it was early adopters only were involved in it. And I see this stuff going on here, and there have been other ones, these other challenges. Look, some of the challenges I know are great. They raise money for uh, – they raise money for excellent charities. But I look at this, and I see that there are kids who are biting and chewing on – these are teenagers, okay? This is not four-year-olds that, you know, that, or, I don't know, maybe two-year-olds who put things in their mouths and actually spoke to a friend of mine who's a, a pediatrician just last weekend. I said, you know, how are things going? She says, well, we had a kid recently who you know, swallowed a battery. and I, Swallowing a battery is a very big deal. It can be a fatal issue. So, you know, I, but the kid was 18 months or something or a year old. I don't know how old kids are when they're just doing that. But these are teenagers, and they're biting down on detergent pods because they saw something online about it. <sighs> I mean, I don't have kids yet, but I'm I'm hoping to in the relatively near future. And I don't know what the answer is to get kids to not take social media as any kind of instructions for how to act in their day to day lives. And can you imagine having to rush your 13 or 14 year old to a poison control center because he saw or she saw a video of somebody Biting on a laundry detergent, uh, the laundry packing challenge. It's it is so dumb that I have to assume that this is just a function of the power that social media can have on the minds of of young people. They see it and they want to imitate it, especially if it's a person who they like or think is funny or a lot of these YouTubers that have I'm not familiar with that many of them, just to be completely frank. But some of the YouTubers I see. I kind of want to say, you know, these are not good role models, maybe isn't the right word, but they should not be patterning themselves after these ignorant clowns with their YouTube channels. You know, this is not good stuff. They're not learning anything. It's a lot of piffle, a lot of uh, wasted time. And maybe I'm getting a little get off my lawn right now, but it just feels like we're at a point now where there's 
where there are news stories about how kids, teenagers, should not be biting on laundry packets to make a video of it. I have to think to myself, uh, what do we do to get social media to have less of a grip on the minds of the youth? You know, that would be a that would be a challenge for. Ah, it's probably going to be a challenge for the ages. But I just I'm a I'm amazed and appalled that this is something that we need to uh, to worry about. I don't know. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Poison control centers have had 50,000 calls about laundry packages over the past five years, but usually they're kids under five. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. But here you've got 13 to 19-year-old kids with 130 intentional exposures in the last year. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people that are old enough to know better who are biting on laundry detergent packets because they saw it on a video. I don't know what the world's coming to. Anyway, we're going to talk about, uh, speaking about what the world's coming to, we're going to discuss the situation in Venezuela coming up here, and then some more Jeff Flake talk. Stay right there. Welcome back, everybody. You know, we are not getting much reporting on Venezuela, given that it is a cautionary tale of the excesses of the state, of redistribution of wealth, of social justice, as well as of socialism. You would think that perhaps there could be a bit more of a media interest in talking about this. In fact, if you were to just Google news on Venezuela, you would see headlines like, quote, you can't get $1 out of the bank in Venezuela. I tried. And Venezuela is on the brink of or inching closer to collapse. But you got to search for them. They're in the back pages. People don't seem to really care. You have to want to see stories about Venezuela, and you may find a couple. Why is that, I wonder? Why is this absolute uh, destruction of a state that should be, by all accounts, wealthy, not front-page news. We've got Sarab Amari on the line now. He's a writer for Commentary. You can check out his latest at commentarymagazine.com. He's going to talk to us about some of his writing on this. Uh, Sarab, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Beth. Uh, okay, what's what's going on in Venezuela? Well, first tell me about the piece you're writing, and then we can talk more broadly about what's happening in Venezuela right now. Well, Buck, what I wrote about is uh, an attack by the Venezuelan state on uh, uh, the Catholic Church there. It's been a mountain kind of effort to intimidate the Catholic bishops for speaking out against the poverty, against the corruption, against the dictatorship. And so they most recently, the uh, socialist thug-in-chief in Caracas uh, president, quote-unquote President Maduro, singled out two bishops, so he didn't name them, whom he said should be investigated for, for hate crimes. And these two bishops, the local media have identified them, have not engaged in any hate crimes whatsoever. Their only crime is that they tell their diocesans in in mass or in other settings, in homilies, that they pray for the country to be liberated from corruption and mismanagement. And so this is a very sensitive issue because the the Catholic Church has taken a very sensitive stance. It's tried to broker talks between the government and the opposition. But now you have a kind of direct attack against two prelates uh, of the Catholic Church. And it's just another sign that this is this is a an unstable, uh, a dangerous regime that's essentially at war with the entire Venezuelan society. It's close to collapse. How much worse do you think it can get at this point, Sarab? It seems to me like when you already have uh, breadline shortages of food staples, uh, tremendous violence. People forget that Venezuela has become per capita one of the worst places in the world for murder. And you have a thuggish regime 
that is in charge. It doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon. What are you expecting to happen? Well, let's describe the conditions first. You mentioned how uh, this reporter for CNN Money just had the, the piece about the fact that um, uh, that he couldn't withdraw one dollar, one dollar from the ATMs. The currency has utterly collapsed in one year since the beginning of 27 till now. It's lost 98 percent of its value. So one dollar now uh, is something like 161,000 uh, in Venezuelan uh, uh, currency. So. That's just one sign. And today, Reuters reported that there are um, uh, looting across the country where people are just hungry in the countryside. They can't even find food in the trash cans anymore, so they're attacking stores, and the stores are having to to take up arms to to protect pri- private property. So, and, and the government just announced this ludicrous idea that they would give every pregnant woman three dollars, the equivalent of three dollars a month in terms of financial support, which goes nowhere anywhere, including in Venezuela. So economically, it's in this shape, but it it holds on the regime through pure force, pure brutality. But the thing is, that only goes so far because those soldiers and those security forces still come from from the root of the people. And so at some point, I would expect that there that, that there be a rupture where soldiers will no longer accept orders to brutalize their own their own people, and then you could have a state collapse scenario in our own hemisphere, and the possibility of migrants flooding into neighboring countries, uh, in, in trying to flood to the U.S. And who knows? But but this is a very this is a scenario that the U.S. and Western uh, governments, Canada, and others need to pay attention to because it's right in our own hemisphere. We're speaking to Sarab Amari, who is a writer at Commentary Magazine. He's got a piece, Venezuela Targets the Catholic Church. Very sobering piece I recommend to you all. Uh, Sarab, two things jump out to me here. Uh, One is that when it comes to the way the media is or is not covering this, like I said, I'm not pretending that there are no stories. Obviously, you're writing on it, CNN, but it's certainly not front of mind for any major cable news channel. It's not front of mind for uh, many of the very large newspapers out there. And I think that there are at least two explanations or, or there are at least two reasons why that should be suspect. One is this is an unbelievable story. I mean, it's, it's a terrible story, but it, it makes for gripping reading. And I think it is an important cautionary tale. And the other is that there were a lot of prominent writers and leftists and intellectuals and TV journalists and all the rest of it who for years were extolling the wonderful progress in social justice and otherwise of the Venezuelan state as recently as like 2012. I remember seeing articles like that. And I think people are trying to walk away from this disaster now without their names attached to it in this country. Well, sometimes you do see uh, really in-depth reporting from from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Um, But on the whole, you're right. Certainly cable news is this unfortunate obsession on the media uh, with everything Trump. It's just merely the tweets and the, 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 the latest kind of gossip about the porn star or whatever, where there are real things happening in the world uh, that affect U.S. national security interests, that affect U.S. moral interests, that certainly cable news is utterly uninterested in. And I think you're right that the, part of it is the fact that this runs against the kind of social justice narrative. And the drive on the on the part of the Democratic Party here in the U.S. toward a kind of socialism. I mean, the the star of the Democratic Party is 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 not the Clintonites. It's Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders in 2011 said Venezuela is really where the American dream has become realized. That was in 2011. 
no apology, no walk back of that statement. In Britain, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, huge fan of Chavez, huge fan of Venezuela, now kind of silent, perhaps humbled by the events. But it would be nice for some of these people, the Sean Penns, the Joe Kennedys and others, in the face of the reality of what happens when you have overly redistributive government, price controls, and uh, essentially collectivism, the reality is that this is what happens. This is Bernie Sanders' America. Sarab Amari of Commentary, everybody. Check out his latest, Venezuela Targets, the Catholic Church. And really, everyone, the, the story about what's happening in Venezuela right now is one we should all be uh, familiar with because it, it sends a lot of signals that we should keep in mind about what the future of this country should or should not look like in terms of the economy and the direction of our politics and everything else. Sarab, so thank you so much for joining. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Buck. All right, team, we're going to roll into a uh, quick break here. Remember, if you got any thoughts on the show, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, great place to go. Please follow if you are on Facebook. I am hoping if you're listening to the show, you'll follow that page. We keep it just stories that you should know about and use it as a means of communicating between all the Team Buck folks. So it's a, a good place to go and uh, get all that done. Also, if you're on Twitter, which conservatives, for whatever reason, we are way less Twitter interested as a group than the left is, which is kind of a shame because it can be a fun way to communicate back and forth. In fact, some of you tweeted me during the show, and I'll respond. You can send a tweet at Buck Sexton on Twitter, and uh, I'll respond in real time if I can and certainly later on. So with all that, let me say we'll come right back in just a few. We're going to make fun of Jeff Flake. You're going to like it. Stay with me. The enemy of the people was how the president of the United States called the free press in 2017. Mr. President, it is a testament to the condition of our democracy that our own president uses words infamously spoken by Joseph Stalin to describe his enemies. It bears noting that so fraught with malice was the phrase enemy of the people that even Nikita Khrushchev forbade its use telling the Soviet Communist Party that the phrase had been introduced by Stalin for the purpose of, quote, annihilating such individuals, unquote, who disagreed with the supreme leader. You got half-baked Flake there, Jeff Flake, speaking to an empty room. The guy's got all the credibility of a used car salesman who's pointing at a red Corvette on his depressing lot saying, I've got a special price for you because you're my kind of guy. And he's comparing the president of the United States to Stalin. Now, it's been understood. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. It's been understood for quite a while that if you compare someone to Hitler, you sh you're not making a smart comparison at a minimum because there's only one Hitler and Hitler is a level of terrible way beyond what is what most people usually invoke Hitler for. Right. The moment you go add at add Hitlerum, so to speak, in the argument, you go to a Hitler comparison, you've probably lost. And, and here we are with uh, with Jeff Flake going with the Hitler stuff, and it's just amazing to me. It's so very irresponsible. I would say this to you. If I were a conservative that, for whatever reason, still had a lot of problem with the Trump administration, right? If I were never Trump, I would look at somebody like Jeff Flake and just think, you are doing so much damage to the cause of whatever actual criticism one could have of President Trump. And I think there's not not a whole lot to uh, to get excited about at all from the perspective of 
what he's done. I mean, I'm not talking about tone. I'm not talking about tweets. I'm talking about accomplishments. But I would look at somebody like Jeff Flake, and I would think to myself, that guy is a complete and utter clown show. Not only has the past year seen an American president borrow despotic language to refer to the free press, but it seems he has now in turn inspired dictators and authoritarians with his own language. That is reprehensible. We are not in a fake news era, as Bashar Assad says. We are, rather, in an era in which the authoritarian impulse is reasserting itself to challenge free people and free societies everywhere. Name one thing, half-baked flake, that President Trump has actually done to harm press freedom. You see, I can point to the Obama administration and President Obama pulling records, phone records of journalists. I can point to the Obama administration doing things that hurt press freedom. And yet here we are with a sitting Republican senator who figures that his speaking fees are going to go up. He's not going to run again. He's very unpopular in Arizona. His speaking fees may go up if he trashes Trump on the way out the door. He is a historical ignoramus, I would like to add. He has absolutely no idea about the realities of the Soviet Union, the KGB, what it was. Because I'm actually doing him a favor by saying that. Because if he knew anything about the Soviet Union and was saying this kind of stuff, then he's just a dishonest piece of trash. So I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that he's just ignorant and a little dumb, not actually malicious and cynical. Maybe maybe I shouldn't make that mistake, though. I would note that this uh, free press around the world is under assault because of Trump is one of the most intellectually lazy, annoying tropes that is out there. In fact, I had to call out fake Tapper on Twitter because he retweeted a while ago. You can see this is all out there. A story about how uh, Trump is damaging to. Now, he didn't say it, but he retweeted it. Trump is damaging to press freedom around the world. And other people, other authoritarians are borrowing Trump's rhetoric. And therefore, it's like Trump is the problem with regimes that are actually imprisoning journalists. Violating such individuals, unquote, who disagreed with the supreme leader. This alone should be the source of great shame for us in this body, especially for those of us in the president's party, for they are shameful, repulsive statements. And of course, the president has it precisely backward. Despotism is the enemy of the people. The free press is the despot's enemy, which makes the free press the guardian of democracy. When a figure in power reflexively calls any press that doesn't suit him fake news, it is that person who should be the figure of suspicion, not the press. It is that person who should be the figure of suspicion. The speechwriters need to calm down. They're kind of going into Olbermann-esque territory here. Did you not see, sir, that Miss Precious Perfect would like you to resign? Just madness. Inanity mixed with insanity. That's what you're getting from Half-Baked Flake. And I, I, I just got to say, this idea that Trump is somehow the great evil when it comes to the First Amendment and the press. Look, should he threaten to sue people? No, but has he sued anybody? No. He's trying to fight back against a system that's stacked against him. I would offer that when President Obama was snide and dismissive and undermining of Fox News specifically, which was the only cable news channel out of 
all of them, out of all the different TV channels, all the different uh, major cable outlets in existence during the Obama presidency, Fox was the sole voice of any criticism of Obama. I mean, CNN cheerleading section, MSNBC cheerleading section, uh, cheerleading section. Same thing with ABC, NBC and CBS. So what's really a greater chilling effect on the press and on these different freedoms that Jeff Flake wants us all to be so concerned about? Is it the president who has the entire media in his back pocket? The president who, on a whim, can determine the way an issue will be presented to the, to the American people by 90%, almost the entirety of the media, and who will cover for him and lie for him and bend the knee to him. Is that a bigger threat? I think it is than having a president who fights back against a 90% of the media that sees its role as bringing down his presidency, presidency, not speaking truth to power, not holding him accountable, not being honest, bringing down the presidency. We're, we're supposed to be so worried about the First Amendment when the First Amendment is being used all the time in ways to tear down this president that it never would have been used during the Obama years or any Democrat president. In fact, you could argue that Trump is the best evidence there is that the First Amendment is not just alive and well. It is in almost absolutism territory with the media right now. So Jeff Flake has it exactly backwards. But half-baked Flake should stick to trying to sell lemons for way more than they're worth off the used car lot. All right, uh, we're going to come back to some thoughts on the Shields High podcast. I'm going to run by you and then some uh, roll call team. So stay right there. So, team, I I had some thoughts that I wanted to put out there because I know that some of you will definitely let me know if I'm on the right track here. Here's what I'm thinking. The history show, Shields High, because this is a work in progress, like all things in the HUD. I'm very responsive to what you all think and what you want more of and what you want me to do differently or add into things. Shields High is doing very well, but I need to extend it based on the amount of time I'm putting into these shows, because I'm doing it all on my own, by adding just more content. I need to put more content out there. And so I'm thinking that what we would do, and try this for a while, would be on Mondays, the big scripted show would come out like you've heard so far, The First Crusade, Charles Martel. This week, this Monday, will be The Fall of Constantinople. After that, I think we're going to go Siege of Malta, but don't quote me on that. You know, I love the Siege of Malta. And, and then we've got some others lined up. But I think what I'd like to do is to do the initial, because some of you like it when I just riff on history, and some of you like the more scripted, theatrical approach to all this. So I think what I'd like to try, and I'm wondering if you think this would be kind of cool, would be I will, and I'm using you guys as my think tank, all of you who listen to this show, I will do the... Scripted show the way that it is on Monday with all the research and everything. And then I will do a couple of shows after that will hit probably Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, most likely. So maybe two or three shows after based on the big Monday show. And it will be after action report and deep dive. So the after action report would be just a a quick rundown of, you know, why I picked this topic, what research, what books. I know a lot of you like to know what books I'm reading to do this. So I could and give you a sense of which ones I think were good or helpful or worth reading on your own if you're looking for something, a really good history book. And then the deep dives would be, and this is what I'm thinking for the Constantinople show, picking 
probably one type of warrior and one type of weapon, and then just doing a little extra research, and it would be, you know, on Thursday we'd pop with the, or let's say Wednesday, whatever, I'd do just, just do like a 10 or 15 minutes on the Janissaries. And then maybe the next day I would do the, the earliest uh, firearms used at the Battle of, uh, well, in this case we'd be talking mostly about cannons, but, you know, some of the, the early uh, firearms used by the Ottoman forces. And, and so that's my idea as a way of giving, because people want more. I know they like the Monday show, but there have already been requests to have this be a more consistent uh, product, more consistent show in the sense that I'm going to give you more to do. than, And there's so much that goes into that Monday show that I think that it would be worth expanding it out. So that that's my plan, at least. And if you have any thoughts on that, officialteambuck at gmail.com and also, of course, facebook.com slash bucksexton. And let me know what you think. There, I think I'm going to try this, but if you have any ideas or suggestions, uh, then that would be great. Or if you'd like, you know what, Buck, we'd really like more of X based on the history shows you're already doing. I don't mean topics. I mean ways that I can add more context to the show and maybe get into some of the current events that tie into. These are the thoughts that I have. This is what keeps me up late at night. This is what I'm thinking about, tying into current events and how for example, the modern situation of Turkey and its turn to Islamism, you know, something like that, right? Look at it through the, the lens of how the history story I told you. Remember, the, the tagline for the show is the battles of the past define the present. How did this fight for Constantinople in this case, there'll be other ones as well, define a modern problem? I, I think that's another way to do this. So that's my plan to extend these out because the biggest thing I'm seeing is a lot of you are saying, hey, it's great, but I want more than one show a week on this. And uh, I, so I think that's what I'm going to try to do. And with that, now we can get into uh, Roll Call. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. <laughs> got to love the intros. You know, it's, uh, it's another addition to the show here. Something fun. To, uh, to get going with. Um, TJ, he's up first on Roll Call. So glad to hear you have Dan Bongino on as a guest. You, him, Shapiro, and of course, the Maharishi are mandatory everyday listening. If you all decide to get drinks together someday, let me know. I'd love to listen in on that conversation. Well, TJ, thank you very much. Dan, I know uh, well from the business and have for years, and he's always been just a very nice, solid, good guy. Uh, I've only worked with Ben Shapiro. I've actually, I don't think I've ever met him in person. I've just talked to him on radio before many times. And while I have filled in for the the one and only Maharashi, as you say, uh, El Rushbo himself, Rush Limbaugh, uh, I have actually never met him. So I've filled in on his radio show, but I've never met Rush. Uh, maybe one day I will get the chance. But uh, yeah, that'd be a fun drink session to be sure. Jonathan, next up here, he writes, I notice you never say Stitcher as a podcast option. That is the way I listen to the show, and I love the app. Well, Jonathan, you are correct. Stitcher is, in fact, an option for listening to both the Buck Sexton show. It's fun for me to say, because it's no longer there's no longer any other name of the show. And the Shields High podcast. So that's, that's what I've got going there. Uh... 
do we got next? Oh, so yeah, Stitcher. It works. Check it out. George, I listened to your show last night about liberals committing mass shootings. Is it possible to get a list? Also, I've become a big fan of your show on WDBO. Thanks. Uh, George, I think I was referring mostly to Islamic extremist mass casualty events yesterday. I don't remember. I mentioned the the Bernie Sanders supporting left winger who tried to kill a, a number of conservative members of Congress in the last year, but uh, or last year. But I don't remember talking about liberals uh, in mass shootings. And that's a whole other conversation. But uh, I will continue to talk about jihadism and the threat from it as opposed to other types of extremism. Uh, Okay, now we've got uh, Paul. Hi, Buck. Let Booker rant on about racism. The populist movement that elected Trump did so because these points of view are being abandoned by more and more common sense swing voters. Your analysis was spot on. So let them keep this narrative going and you keep doing the analysis. I'm guessing it will not end well for these liberals. Uh, Also, excellent job on the First Crusades. Can't wait for the fall of Constantinople podcast. Well, Paul, thank you. And uh, I think it's going to be really cool. I think it's going to be a very cool podcast. And I'm looking forward to uh, putting it out there. So thank you very much for that. Paul, regarding Kirsten's answers to Leahy, Things are not as they were and as we, uh, that's where it stops. (laughs) Paul, I'm going to have to look at the link you sent because I don't know what the link is about. Uh, We have Sean. uh, Heard you say you had some changes in the Freedom Hut recently. Um, I've heard you cut several off before, and talking about callers, before they could go on insane rants. I hope the changes improve this. Well, Sean, actually, uh, I will tell you, brother, we had producer Amy moved on to Fox News and our friend, which I'm very happy for her uh, about because she's really she was with me with TV at The Blaze. And then we just worked together so well. She came to work with me on radio here. uh, And also Tyrone moved on to get his own sports talk radio show. So uh, we wish Tyrone all the best. And we have you'll hear me refer to him as producer Mike, Mike and or Quinn who is running things, and that's going to be the way that, uh, well, that's going to be the guy who's in charge of all of that. So definitely say hi to Mike when you call in on the lines. Give Mike a uh, give Mike a high five from all of us. And let me see if I can get one more going here before we have to close things out. I'm sorry, I do this based off of the app, and sometimes the Internet does not comply with my demands here. David! The Dems have just decreased their odds of surviving their game of political Russian roulette by adding a second round. Uh, open border immigration to go along with opposition to the Trump economic recovery and tax reform from David. Uh, well, open borders is not popular, but remember, they're only fighting David on the issue of DACA. You'll notice that they don't say they want open borders. They're just starting with DACA. And then DACA becomes the beachhead for a much larger, more comprehensive amnesty. Mark my words about that. That is what is going to happen. No question in my mind. So we need to make sure that the if they're going to go with DACA, if Trump is going to sign a, a DACA bill of some kind, their needs and who says they have to? Right? They could just fund the government, which is what I think is going to happen here. They're going to kick the can. That's my calculation. But if Trump signs DACA, they better get something very substantive in exchange. All right, that's going to be it today in the hut. Please do download this show, The Buck Sexton Show, and also check out the uh, Shields High History podcast. And Shields High, everyone.